What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And today, I am joined by the one and only Torre. All right, so he just dropped a brand new book called Nothing Compares to You, and it's an oral history of Prince. So I was super excited. I just reached out to Torre because I read one of his other books. I'm like, hey, dude, you want to come on the podcast? He's like, hey. I actually have another book coming out. So he sent me an early copy of this. I, I binged it and I've personally been, you know, a lifelong Prince fan, like many, many other people. And, you know, there's always been this kind of mystery around him, which I talk with uh, Torre about in this conversation. So I really enjoyed the book because it's a collection of interviews with people, you know, closest to Prince and Torre puts it all together. And it's just a really interesting interesting book right like you learn so much about prince and who he was and his relationships and you know what kind of drove him and his relationship with his parents and so many other things that i don't think you know a lot of the the public was really aware of but what's nuts is like during this conversation with Torre, i'm like holy crap man i'm like how do you hold all this knowledge in your head and yeah he's a he's an amazing writer and storyteller and you'll be able to tell from this conversation. And, you know, even though I just finished the book, I've still learned a lot from Torre. So, you know, uh, this is the second book about Prince, but this one is much different than the first one. And we talk a little bit about what separates it and all that. But yeah, Torre has been, a, you know, a music journalist for years now. He's interviewed a ton, a ton of musicians and stuff. And one of them includes Prince and he talks about it a little bit in here. So, so yeah, make sure down in the description below, Make sure you're following Torre over on Twitter and on Instagram and grab a copy of this book. I will also link a couple of his other books, like his other Prince book, as well as uh, a couple others down there. And Torre actually has some podcasts as well. The dude hustles and it's super inspiring to me. So make sure you check that down in the description below. Yeah. And while you're down there, by the way, if you're not yet, follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes or, you know, just books I'm reading, people I'm talking to, and I love talking to each and every one of you. So make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul. All right, but anyways, yeah, this was such a great conversation. I love talking to Torre about all this stuff. So I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Torre about his brand new book about Prince, Nothing Compares to You. Hello, Torre. How you doing today? Good, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know what? I, I appreciate you sending me an early copy of this book. And yeah, I, like I was saying right before we hopped on, I've been binging it today. So so this, this book is about Prince, but correct me if I'm wrong. This is your second Prince book? It is. You know, I wrote a book um, when he was still alive called I Would Die For You, which is more of an academic sort of look at the themes around him mm. and his, and it was sort of based on like his relationship to Generation X. Um, I had interviewed Skip Gates for my previous book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness? So look at what it means to be black. And he said, well, why don't you come back and do uh, you know our annual lecture series on culture? And I said, okay, I'm gonna do a series of lectures on Prince's relationship to Generation X and why he was an icon for Generation X. And put that together, um, did some interviews for that, some interviews with the inner circle, but it wasn't really focused on that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that book came out. A lot of people really liked that book. When, when he passed away, a lot of people told me they found um, some solace in, in reading that, that they wanted more information about mm -hmm. him. And they they turn to that book. I mean, you know, you get like people coming up to you on the subway and stuff saying like, yeah, we get through my grief when he had died. And, um, you know, when I looked up a few years later, I was like, you know, I, I've done 15 years of interviewing him and his inner circle, musicians, engineers, girlfriends, managers, you know, mm -hmm. colleagues, friends, stylists, like all sorts of people. I have a book's 
worth of material on him. And I really set out to do that. Now that I said, the other book was academic and thematic. This is chronological. Yeah. This oral history taking you through his life from, from early days to his end and sort of charting the rise, you know, the, the highest level, you know, the development of, um, you know, a drug problem, you know, his love life issues and then his end. So, and I sort of, have a theory of his life and why his life played out in the way it did, um, mm -hmm. which partly goes to, he grows up with his parents. His parents split when he's about 10. His mother remarries. He hates his stepfather and he increasingly dislikes his mother as he's mm -hmm. living with her. And you see that expressed throughout his life. His girlfriends say that he does, a, he did a very mean spirited impression yeah. of mother for them sort of telling them in his own way like don't be like drinking and smoking around me my mother did that and i hated that yeah. um so he leaves his mother's house and goes to live with his father but he never forgives his mother for letting him leave six months into living with big john his father he, uh big john kicks him out right he said don't bring girls up into my place mm -hmm. He's already hanging out with morris day they're chasing girls, even though they're 12, 13 years old, getting girls, even though they're 12, 13 years yeah. old. Um, you know, Big John realized they were bringing girls back to the crib. He told him, don't do that. You know, uh, Prince walked in and Big John said, Skipper, put your key on the table. Morris Day is there for all the Skipper. Put your key on the table and get out. And he was like, there's nothing I can do. The guy's hardcore. He's very strict. He's kicking me out. And so he leaves um, and he ends up living with, with you know, Bernadette Anderson in her mm -hmm. house. Talk about that. That's a critical part, the piece of why he becomes who he is. But he leaves those two experiences, his mother's house and his father's house, with a sense of needing to prove himself and, and take revenge on them, saying, you know, they both abandoned me in their own way. And I need to prove to them that I'm a valuable person who should not have been abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I wanna get back at my mom and I wanna get my dad's love and attention and respect. And I, the way I'm gonna do that is by becoming a rock star. Mm -hmm. And his dad was already a working musician. Now he was not a, an earning musician. Yeah. He was spending his nights in the clubs of Minneapolis, sometimes strip clubs of Minneapolis playing music, but he's working at Honeywell during the day. That's how he's paying the bills, but he's yeah. not, money as a musician but prince knew that by becoming a rock star he would get his dad's love and respect and attention and he'd be able to show his mom see look you should have cared for me so he is super driven throughout his teens mm -hmm. to become a rock star and the other people around him be it andre simone or des dickerson or others who are like I was the most driven person that anybody around me ever knew until I met Prince. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, I cannot compete with his drive. And people are like, we would have a rehearsal. Prince would not take breaks during the rehearsal. And then he would leave when our rehearsal ended, which might be six or eight hours long, yeah. he would go home and have his own rehearsal. So, you know, Morris Day talks about him knocking on the door at 1 a.m. at 3 a.m. because young Morris Day had a four-track recorder so they could make songs. Prince yeah. So he's knocking on the door at 3 a.m. saying, I need to get in and record a song that I just thought of. Right. So I mean, like he's just, you know, when 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 the teacher came to unlock the music room at school in the morning, Prince is there. At the end of the day, when the teacher comes to unlock the door, Prince is there. So I mean mm -hmm. like just, it's just always about music all day long, building to try to become a rock star. And when he finally meets somebody, Chris Moon, who owns a local studio, mm -hmm. he goes right in, you know, convinces the guy, hey, you know, I'll work with you on some jingles. Hey, can I get a key and like learn how to use your studio? Yeah. Like moves into the studio. And, you know, you can only imagine they would be there day and night trying to figure out what every knob does because when he's a professional not only is he making all the music performing all the instruments he played everything except horn 
he's also producing himself. Mm-hmm. He didn't hear himself, but he produced himself. So he's not needing anyone but an engineer in the studio. And I've yeah. done the engineering also. Yeah, it was it was nuts. Like uh, just reading the book and seeing his his work ethic, and you talk about how he would just pick up different instruments and just play them until he figured them out, and that's wild to me, right? And and yeah, like I'm the type of guy where I'm like, no, I got a pretty strong work ethic, but I'm reading this book, I'm like, damn, right? So here here's here's a question I have for you, like when you're talking about you know his uh, you know his mom and his dad and stuff, something I'm curious about, like that work ethic, right, and his his drive to be this star and all that like do you do you think you know like how much of it was he wanted to do that because he loved it so much or do you think a lot of it was like you said like proving it to his parents I mean hard to split that Adam I Mm. think definitely wanted to show something to his parents but I think he clearly must have deeply loved music because he's just immersed in it his entire life um you know he's picking all these things up very easily so i mean clearly music was deeply important to him he had a talent for it and he loved it i mean people talked about him as you know like michael jordan in that he's the most talented and the hardest worker and when you put those two things together it's it's extraordinary he's extraordinary i mean you know he is the son of two musicians his mother was a singer his father was a player. Um, his father gave him a piano to work with uh, th- that he left behind it when he left the mother's house. So, I mean, you know, he, but it, they talk about the aptitude, the interest, and the talent was there from an early age when they would go to a local department store when Prince is like three mm-hmm. or four. He would stay with his mother unless they saw some sort of a keyboard or a piano. And then he would leave her, you know, or if she lost track of him. She could always find him over by the keyboards and the pianos. Yeah. So, I mean, like that was always attracting him from a very early age. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I learned so much in the book. And I'm, I'm curious since, you know, you mentioned that you run into like Prince fans and all that kind of stuff. So for me, like I'm 36 years old. I've been listening to Prince since I was a kid, right? And there always seemed like this, this mystery around him for me. Like I had no, like I didn't know anything about him aside from the music i didn't know anything about his personal life or anything i didn't see interviews it almost reminded me uh of you know like like michael jackson was pretty private so i don't know if i was just out of the loop but do you think that's why a lot of people are drawn towards him or was i just missing all the interviews because you mentioned in the book that he he kind of didn't like interviews and stuff like that he wasn't comfortable i mean you know he did try to present and maintain a mystique around himself. He didn't want us to know too much about him. So yeah, he does curtail the number of interviews he does. And when I interviewed him, he was on this stick of, of the stick of, of, you cannot record the interview. You must hand write all really? my notes. Which there was some reason given that I never put any stock in. I think it was just to mess with the reporters and just make our job harder. Because yeah. I'm trying to listen to him. And he's very particular with the words that he uses. And I'm trying to write them down. And I write pretty quickly. And I was doing a kind of a shorthand. But there was times when I got back to the hotel, I'm looking at my notes. There were times when I wrote out what he said quite clearly. I could read the words. It was no you know, word for word. And I'm like, I have no idea what this sentence means or what this yeah. is. So I've lost that sentence. Um, but, you know, also, Chris, it was a different time. You know, the level of access that we have mm. to celebrities in general, be it movies, music, what have you, is far greater in terms of the, the ability to reach out to people through social media, mm-hmm. the number of channels we have, the paparazzi in terms of, you know, people who are camped out taking pictures and stuff of people all the time. This was a different time. You know, we didn't mm. have all of that. So artists were able to say, you know, I'm going to go away for a while and then I'm going to come back. I'm going to do one interview with Rolling Stone and then I'll go away. And so they could create that sense of mm. peak, which is much harder and really not prized now. It, that Back then it was felt like the audience should miss you and then you come back and then they should miss you, right? And, and so you play the sort of peekaboo game. Now, yeah. you know, you are supposed to be 
perpetually in the audience's face and never forgotten. Yeah. That was not the way things were. So just even Prince doing an album a year for so long was kind of against convention. And the label was like, can you slow down? Yeah. Like, he's let, you know, there was a time when he wanted to do a triple album. The, the label said, no, you can't. Um, you know, the Michael Jackson model of doing like one album every four years was a yeah. little bit more in keeping with the conventional wisdom of what made sense. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, you know, they wanted people to miss you, um, but Prince wasn't having that. But if Prince was so able to make music, he had so much music flowing out of him, he could not have waited two or three years. Generally, when we got a given album, the next album was already done. Yeah. Right? I always thought that around the world in a day was a response to the mega fame of Purple Rain, right? Mm. That the album's themes were all about like, oh, I've become mega famous, had this gigantic success, so this is my new statement. No, Around the World in a Day was completed before Purple Rain came out. So he did not yet know that he was a global celebrity, a yeah. global mega icon before he finished Around the World in a Day. So it's not really a response to Purple Rain at all. I mean, I think there's a sonic response to it. And mm -hmm. like, I made this rock statement. Now I want to make this other relatively quieter statement, a more internal statement. But it's mm -hmm. not a response to the response to Purple Rain. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, to your point about how how different things were, and like you know, now we have social media. Like hell, that's how I connected with you. I'm like, oh, this dude writes some cool books. You know, I just reached out and and we got connected and stuff like that. But you know, there's there's one part of uh, the book, and I I had never even heard of the story when he tours with the Rolling Stones, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a disaster when he was like brand new or whatever. But anyways, uh, they convinced him to do the next show, right? And uh, I forgot who who uh, you were interviewing for this, but they they said it was almost like it was coordinated, right? Like the, this well, new crowd. Tell the whole, well, let's tell them the whole story, right? Okay, I didn't know if you wanted to spoil it because this book has just dropped. So, I mean, you know, so just, lay I mean, it out there. I mean, like, I'm going to tell a, a, a truncated version of the story, but yeah. I mean, like, it's kind of hard to imagine that there was a time when Fritz was not a big star. And, yeah. you know, when he was doing Dirty Mind, He's coming out in women's clothes, trench coat, lingerie, heels, you know, stockings, fishnet stockings. This was very shocking to America at that time. Definitely shocking to certain kinds of Americans. And the Rolling mm -hmm. Stones were this macho alpha band. They're performing in L.A. to partly an audience that would perhaps later become MAGA, Trump sort of type of people. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, like other people on the Mick Jagger sees something in, in Prince, Keith Richards as well, sees something in Prince and says, we want you to go on tour with us. So he's there, open one of the opening acts on the Friday bill, along with Jay Giles and Ben, George Thurgood and the Destroyers, right? Mm -hmm. And the Rolling Stones in the early 80s are the headliners. So you can kind of imagine the kind of like macho white yeah. man who's going to show up at this show. Prince shows up do, in the falsetto, right? Wearing women's clothes. The audience takes one look at him and they're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. And they go into, um, I believe it's Bambi, a song about masturbation. And Prince says, uh, this is what you do to your girl. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, the, even the band is like, what are you talking about? That's not what you do to your girl. That's what you do to yourself. Like, what are you talking about? The audience sees this black mixed, you know, what we would today read as trans and at that point was mm -hmm. like triggering and like angering. Um, yeah. And they start throwing things. They start throwing bottles. They start throwing food. They throw, you know, somebody throws a Jack Daniels bottle. Yeah. And about four or five songs into the set, Prince runs off stage, right? And Morris mm -hmm. Day already saw, he was videotaping, right? Because he was just the videographer at this point. Morris Day sees what's going on. He's like, this is not going good. I'm going to go backstage and see what's up with my man. Yeah. Prince leaves the stage without signaling to the band, I'm leaving, right? Prince and Morris get in the limo, go back to the airport, get on the plane without the rest of the band and fly back to Minneapolis, right? Now, they're supposed to do the Sunday show. Yeah. And the band is like, what's going on? Where's Prince? He is furious. Um, 
But Mick Jagger and others call him and say, look, this is the way it is. This is what happens. You want to be a rock star. Sometimes these sort of shows are going to happen. You got to be you. You got to tough it out. You got to be willing to die. Like, you know, you, you got to sometimes go into hostile arenas. Yeah. A few fans to get that thick skin and like freaking keep it rocking. Um, so he says, OK. And he comes back to do the Sunday show. And now the band, the, the fans are like ready for war and they're throwing old chicken parts. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And more Jack Daniels. And like Prince does a couple of songs and he leaves. He's very angry with the band, with the fans. Um, you know, Mick Jagger kind of scolds the audience like, you know, one day you'll wish that you heard from this guy. But you notice after Dirty Mind and after an, an experience like that, he changes and he starts yeah. to wear more clothes and he leaves behind the women's clothing thing, um, which was successful and did its part in Dirty Mind. But he's like, I, I don't want to have that happen again. So he shifts sartorially and sty stylistically into the next phase, because, partly because of that experience. Yeah, yeah. You talk about the the transition, and you know the uh, the British like punk scene was like getting big, and and he kind of switched his style. And one part that I found super interesting was you're talking about like they were talking about how in the South he was kind of bringing together white and black people, and and I'm I'm, I'm curious like could you could you speak a little to that like how he brought like with his music and these different styles because it started out I think they were saying like seemed like 80 90 100 percent black and then it just started shifting and kind of evening out I thought that was really cool well, it's partly Prince and it's partly what's going on at the time because you're going from controversy into Purple Rain and he's starting to really catch fire and move upward and get played on all kinds of radio, black radio and white radio. And the band sees the change happening right in front of them where at the start of the tour, they're doing dates that are 80 to 90% black. And by the end of the tour, they're doing 50-50 dates and then 60-40 dates and 70-30 dates. And they're doubling back through cities that they already did and catching the white fans who are coming on later. Um, it's partly because people were learning about Prince, right? I think, you know, typically, you know, white people are coming on later. Black people culturally often tend to be earlier adopters, especially. Mm -hmm. um, so Prince is having his black fan. And like, look, before Purple Rain, I was a Prince fan, even though I was a kid, a lot of the black people around me were Prince fans, right? Purple Rain welcomes in white America and perhaps the rest of the globe. But Prince was already an icon among black people before Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. um, but also you're seeing a shift from what was going on in the 70s. In the 70s, culture was a lot more segregated and you had black superstars who were only stars for black audiences. You think about a Rick James, a George Clinton, you know, perhaps even mm -hmm. uh, maybe a Richard Pryor, right? In the 80s, you start to get black stars who are able to cross over without mm -hmm selling out without losing their black uh, audience. You're talking about Prince, Eddie Murphy, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. Black people continue to love them as all these white people came into the party. Um, so Prince was definitely uh, leading the charge, one of the folks leading the charge that was creating that shift in culture. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that, it was super cool learning about that, and it's interesting looking back on that. And and something I, I've been dying to ask you because uh, there's an entire chapter on just kind of uh, kind of his relationships with the people around him. And I'm like, damn, this dude is kind of a dick, right? Like there are some brutal, brutal stories in there. So. I got a couple of questions about this, but the first one, I guess, like, you know, uh, meeting the people in his life and everything, what do, you, what do you think kept a lot of them around? Was it like, were they trying to ride the fame or they just, was it more respect or what, what do you think it was? Because it seemed like very abusive relationships. Well, I mean, two things were happening because he could be quite loving and, and, and yeah. people really believed in the mission and they believed in him as a talent. And they had these great moments with, and musically he brought more out of you than you had ever, yeah. just like, you know, like if you were playing basketball with Michael Jordan, you would probably play at a higher level. Like you'd feel it like, 
we are all functioning at a higher level of basketball than we have ever. And they were, and these are experienced musicians who are like, I'm going to a higher level than a, so I'm loving this. And he's giving people in many cases, a, an opportunity to do more with their career than mm. they ever had. Morris Day was a drummer who was shy. And, and, you know, if you really want to go into it, Alexander O'Neill, who was a front man, was supposed to front the time. Alexander O'Neill wanted more money than Prince was willing or able to pay. And mm -hmm. he said, okay, we can't rock with Alex. Morris, why don't you front the time? And he was like, no, 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 not me. I'm a drummer. I don't know what to do or how to do. I mean, like, can you imagine now Morris Day saying, no, I don't know how to be a front man. Yeah, but that's nuts. Like, you can absolutely do it. And he saw something in Morris, elevated him, and, and helped bring it out of him through Prince Bootcamp, which is the way Morris termed it. Yeah. And he turned Morris into one of the great front men of the 80s. But he does this over and over for all sorts of people. There are photographers who are like, he showed me that I could be a director and that changed my career. Um, you know, he showed me I could be a this when I was only that and it changed my career. So he does that for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And they believed in the music He's hiring women to be engineers at a time when very few people were doing that. Even hiring Wendy and Lisa, lead guitar, lead keyboardist. And he had mm -hmm. a female keyboardist before Lisa Coleman. But, you know, he's hiring women, giving them chances. Most rock bands were not giving women uh, big chances to do stuff like that. So he, yeah. he's, he's totally so he's totally giving all sorts of people chances. Now, within that. Yeah, he could be really rough when he wasn't getting what he needed from folks. Uh, there's definitely some physical altercations where he kicked somebody, you know, yeah. in the butt, kicked them in the chest on stage, berated people, teased people mercilessly, embarrassed them in front of their coworkers, their colleagues. So, you know, there were definitely rough moments in working with him. But nobody said, I wish I had not worked with him. Nobody mm. said, on balance, this did not work for me. This was abusive. You somehow sometimes had to take that vinegar uh, to get the whole stew. But for the most part, they were inspired and thrilled at having been in his life and a part of his professional uh, cabal. And he really lifted people up much more than he beat them down. Yeah, yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. You know, that's that's something, you know, I try to do. And I think a lot of people who, you know, they, they're moving their way up, they're trying to be around people who make them better. And then sometimes you got to take a little bit of that shit that comes along, along with it. And, you know, this is, this is kind of a, uh, a secondary question, uh, you know, just since you, you've done so much, you know, research around Prince and all these interviews and everything like that, but also like, in a in a wider scope, because you've been doing this for so long, like, when you learn about their personalities and some of these behind the scenes things and stuff like that, you know, especially in today's world, it seems like people have a problem, a, a difficult time separating the art from the artist. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, like when you learn and you kind of, you know, you, you meet your heroes and stuff, like, has that shifted your perception or are you able to kind of keep that separate? Um, you know, I mean, I don't have a, a, an issue in that way. I mean, like, you know, I met the guy, I loved him as an artist, and I just wanted to understand more about him. I just had a lot of questions. And, you know, I didn't choose this journey. It's almost like it chose me. It just sort of like took a step and another step and another step. And, you know, asked somebody a bunch of questions and they gave me really interesting answers and then asked somebody else a bunch of questions and then somebody else went back to the first person, found somebody else. And next thing you know, mm. it's like, oh, I've had like really deep conversations with like eight people in his universe. And then they introduced me to eight more people and eight more people. And I'm like, you know, and then I can ping back to people. And, you know, you really can figure out a lot of what's going on. Because sometimes, you know, people talk in a bit of code and you don't fully understand, but you go back to somebody else. Like, yeah. well, now that I learned this piece of the puzzle, can you show me how it fits a lot? Yes. Well, you didn't ask before, but now that you've asked this, I can, I mean, like, you know, somebody, one of the guys started talking about the end of the revolution. And they said that, you know, the end of the revolution has a lot to do with the end of the family. 
which was another one of Prince's satellite groups that didn't really have as much success as the time and band. Mm. But the family was an important part of this universe. And I didn't really understand what they meant. And that person was talking about like, you know, the, the break of the family was the sort of toxic water that spilled that killed the revolution. And I'm like, what is this person talking about? Like, I don't understand. And I was able to go back to somebody else who understood the family very well. And they're able to say, this is what that means. Mm. When the family broke up, Prince still felt like, well, I have all these people who I'm responsible to. I don't want to fire people. I don't want to cut them loose. He also had invested a lot of time and thought and energy into people and teaching them his way. So he didn't want you going off into other camps and pop music and spreading his knowledge elsewhere. Somebody got fired for spending too much time around Janet Jackson because it's like, you can't take my secrets and go over to Janet's camp and spread them over there. But he definitely felt beholden uh, to these folks who he had hired who were in the family, in the world of the family. Mm. So he puts them on stage with the revolution as they're going on one of the tours. I think it was the Love Sexy tour. And um, if memory serves. And, you know, the folks in the revolution are going, why are they here? Like the stage feels very claustrophobic now. Like we've been here since day one, since there was almost nobody in the audience thugging this out gig by gig. Now we're superstars and they're just jumping on our stage. Like, we don't appreciate this. And it created a lot of tension. And there was already tension because they've been together for a while and it's hard. Yeah. But like it created more tension to where, um, you know, they could see that that tour was probably going to be the last one mm-hmm. because there was so much dissension going on. And in the last show uh, in Tokyo, the, it, the show is finished and Prince takes his guitar and he smashes it to bits right on the stage in front of them. And he was not the sort of person to do that. Mm-hmm. And they were all kind of like shocked by this action, but they kind of understood like that represents like all this is ending. Like he, he's saying like, I am taking this thing that we did and destroying it. And after that, there's uh, you know the, the pink slip dinner where he invites Wendy and Lisa to his house and he fires them. And that yeah. is critical because Wendy and Lisa in particular have a huge impact on his sound. They are mm. a big reason why Purple Rain sounds the way it did and why the other Revolution albums sound the way they do. So, and that is his, his most commercially successful period when they are there. He's writing and playing everything, but they are in collaboration with him at a certain level. They are introducing him to certain things. Look, Mm. Around the World in a Day emerges from uh, Wendy and Susanna's brother, Jonathan, playing Prince a song. And he's like, okay, great. This is the germ of my next album. This song around his, Jonathan's song Around the World in a Day is beautiful and perfect and I'm going to take this and build an album around this idea. So yeah. they're introducing him to different ideas, bringing their uh, musical background to bear and that is influencing him. Just as before uh, mm-hmm. when it's Des Dickerson and Des Dickerson is like, yo, punk and new wave is where it's at. That's why Dirty Mind sounds uh. like that. Prince is writing and producing and playing everything, but his friend Des is whispering in his ear about punk and new wave. That's the shit. He's playing him that music. Yeah. And now Wendy and Lisa are giving him their influence. And so it's shaping him. So, you know, when they leave, this is the end of an era for Prince um, because, you know, that musical influence is no longer with him. Yeah, and and you know, uh, a minute ago when you were talking about kind of how he he didn't want people, you know, leaving and going and spreading like his secret sauce type deal. So, as a, as a fellow creator, as somebody who likes to write, I want to ask you about some of your secret sauce. Like how do like when you're talking about like oh this story, and then it connects in here, and you ask how the hell do you do you put all that together with all the interviews? How did you like I see a big blank wall behind you. You like a post-it note guy. You like writing down dates. Like, how how does that work? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, some of this book was chronological, so in a way, 
there, it, it was kind of easy, but I mean, that's not totally telling the story. There's times when you have to break the chronology. I don't do it with post-it notes, but I think at this point, having done this for a while, you get a sense of narrative and what works and what mm. needs to wear that you can start to say like, okay, so this story has concluded, you know, we can go here now with this, we can go in this direction there. I, I don't do it with post-it notes, but I may sort of like arrange all the quotes or yeah. all the relevant quotes in one file in Microsoft Word, and then start to think about what would be a good order for arranging these quotes, and mm. then try to create the connective tissue that takes us through the story that's being told by the quotes. Yeah, no, that that's that's awesome. I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll need you to let me watch how you do this because <laughs> I'm always like thinking about that like with my writing and I get so impressed by that. But but yeah, man, I a few more questions for you. So so yeah, uh, Prince, you know he he passed away from drugs, right? And you talk about you like I didn't know this. Like I just figured out oh, people get addicted. Like I got addicted just because of you know like I had family stuff. But uh, I think you even mentioned it on Twitter today. Like he was dealing with chronic pain and when I started to learn about all the rehearsing and you know and him like wearing heels and all sorts of stuff I'm like damn yeah this dude must have had some pain so so I don't, I don't know can you speak like do you think that there's uh you know misconceptions about his you know use of these medications or did you learn anything about it or I definitely learned something about it I mean like you know in the in the in the later 80s there was a tour rehearsal where he's he's rehearsing in a bathtub. The bathtub fell about mm -hmm. 10 to 12 feet to the ground and broke with him in it. Um, this caused some significant hip pain. And he, folks who are very close to him say that that hip pain never really left. And it really stayed with him for decades and decades. Um, that plus doing thousands of shows, extremely physical, jumping and crashing all over the place in heels. He was really doing the same amount of damage to his body and putting the same amount of miles on his body as a professional athlete, a yeah. or football player. And, um, you know, he's really pushing himself. And it's not a surprise that, you know, by the time he's in his 30s, he's in sort of chronic pain. It's mainly in his hip but it's also in his back and his knee. Um, there was a lot of talk later about hip surgery, but after he becomes a Jehovah's Witness uh, later in life in his 40s, he doesn't want to get, you're not supposed to get surgery as a witness. Mm. So that becomes a whole complicating factor of like, I'm in chronic pain, but my faith is telling me not to do that, but I need out of this chronic pain. And, you know, I think a lot of rock stars do drugs based on a sense of hedonism. They miss the roar of the crowd. You know, they feel bored. They want mm -hmm. the excitement of hedonism. Maybe they have a gigantic ego that's like, just do whatever you want all day long. Yeah. And they get, you know, addicted to cocaine, heroin, marijuana, alcohol, whatever it might be. And I'm not judging that. I, you know, I'm an addict. I, am, I just don't use anymore, but I understand mm -hmm. how how that can happen to people. Um, Prince is looking more for relief from chronic pain. I yeah. like his, his struggle with addiction more to, you know, the, the working man who needs to get up and go to the factory or go to the truck or go to the bus or whatever it is, or working woman who, you know, is struggling with back pain or hip pain or knee pain but you got to get up and go to work because you're working class and your family depends on you. So mm -hmm. what do you do? You're taking half a bottle of a leave to get through the day or you're taking opioids to get through the day. And yeah, Prince is wealthy, but he is a Midwestern working class man at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. music was his tools. And he went to the studio just in his mind, he goes to the studio like somebody else goes to the factory. And you know, music are the tools that he's using. And the ability to continue showing up every day for his virtual family, which is his fans, um, he needs opioids to get through the pain to be able to get to the studio and get to the stage. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, it's really tragic and interesting because as a young man, teens, 20s, that period when a lot of us try drugs, he is not doing drugs at all, doesn't yeah. want drugs around him, is pushing people away um, who do cocaine around him. He even, Jerome uh, even talked about being out at a club with him. Jerome had one drink. He was starting his second drink and Prince pushes it away. And he's like, you don't need that. Um, so he doesn't even want you getting drunk around him. He's not getting, but then, you know, as life goes on and life happens to him, he starts to become uh, a user of opioids. Mm -hmm. And one person talked about uh, thinking that he went to rehab in the early to mid nineties mm -hmm. um, and yet still struggled with drug issues after that. And um you know, I think the addiction got stronger and stronger and he was able to have sort of yes men and women yeah. around him and the people who cared, um, not that the later group didn't care, but the people who were like, this is going in the wrong direction mm -hmm. and we want to stop him. You, you couldn't just call him. You couldn't yeah. just pull up at Paisley and knock on the door and like, yo, P, I want to talk to you. Like, if you were not in the circle, you were out and mm -hmm. you could just sort of like easily slide back in and you know I, I, even at vanity's wake which was a few months before he died people were like yo you look like shit what's going yeah. on like you are yeah. skinny like you look drugged out like can we help you can we feed you like what's going on but you can't help an addict i mean you know you've been there i've been there yeah. you can't help an addict who doesn't want help. You can't save them from themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and I wasn't really ready to stop using all the time. There's nothing that my wife or anybody could have said to get me to stop. You know, when you yeah. weren't really ready to stop, there's nothing anybody could have, even if you gone to had gone to rehab, you would have relapsed because you weren't ready. Mm -hmm. And if you were really ready to stop, then you can stop. And, you know, the you know, the, the thing that kills me is to think about somebody from his inner circle calling an addiction specialist in LA the day before he dies mm. and saying, we need you now. And the guy saying, I can't come tomorrow. I can come the day after. And them saying, that's not good enough. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I'll send my son who also works in addiction um, uh, work and he'll come right away. Mm -hmm. And son was part of the group that found him dead. Mm. So folks were aware, like we are in very deep waters here. The guy is really like struggling. We need help now, like not tomorrow. Like, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think he made it through 24 hours after that call. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and like you were saying too, and that's why I try to I try to educate people. You know, uh, not only did I you know work with a lot of addicts, but I try to educate others because you're not you're not you're not doing it until you're you're ready, right? And I I was in a hospital dying, and my family's crying and stuff, and I wasn't even allowed to see my son. All these things, and like, you know, people look at that and be like, "That's rock bottom," but I wasn't ready until I was ready. You know what I mean? And and especially with pills and the way your tolerance goes and all that. So it's just a super sad story. You know what I mean? But but yeah, man, I, I, I wanted to end on a lighter, on a lighter note too, because uh, just getting to know you, you know, a little bit through like reading your stuff. Like I'm the type of guy who are, whenever I'm doing anything, I'm trying to learn, right? Like through our conversation or through me reading your books, I'm like, what can I learn from this dude? Right. So I'm wondering like with everything you've uh, you know, learned about Prince and his career and talking with people like, is there anything that you've taken away that's like kind of pushed you to be better at anything or improved you in any way? I mean, you know, there's a level of excellence that comes from this guy that is uncommon. Like you hardly ever encounter a Michael Jordan level person. You know, there's one or two in, in, in any given field, a, a, you know, a Tiger Woods, you know, you'd be a, you know, a Roger Federer, a Serena Williams, what have you, but very, very few. And Prince was like that. And, you know, like I said, folks are like, he's talented. He's perhaps the most talented around and he's the hardest worker around. 
And when you put those two things together, extraordinary things can happen. And, you know, that's what that, that's part of the core of this life. And he's super focused on music and super driven. And, you know, that's all he's about. And, you know, I've, I'm a fairly driven and focused person, but like, you know, not to his level, but yeah. like, you know, I mean, it, it, if you are focused on developing, like you can accomplish anything. And one of the things that, that Des Dickerson talked about as well was that um, the guy um, was, was really good at being aware of his weaknesses mm. and saying to himself, you know, I'm not that good at X, so let me try to zone in on that and be better at that. Yeah. There's an early performance of Princes with you know Andre Simone and Des Dickerson early days, um, which they said was a terrible show. It was a terrible show. Prince Prince was you know just flaked out. It was a terrible show because he was not really that good of a performer. Yeah, Des Dickerson is like the guy had the humility, the self awareness, and the focus to see like. I'm not that good at this yet. I'm not that good at the stage. Des Dickerson and Andre Simone outshined him as far as stage performers that night. And so he zoned in on that. He worked on that. And, you know, within a few months, it was like, okay, now he's a freaking monster on stage. And mm. uh, boom, here we are. Yeah, no, that, that's one of my favorite things. It's something I try to teach my son too, because it's this idea of like, oh, just natural talent. They were born with it. But the dude like found, like you said, found his weaknesses and worked his ass off to improve them. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, man, uh, I, I, like I said, I binged the rest of the book today. I love it. It flows so well. And it just came out. Yeah. At the time we're recording this, it just came out. So for everybody out there who wants to grab a copy of this book and your other books, you know, uh, where, where is it available? Is it, is it audio? Is it in bookstores? Is it an ebook? It's, it's, it's available everywhere. You can get it at Target, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. There's a Kindle. Um, we haven't done the audio version yet, but we will. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, we're out here in these streets. Book yeah. is everywhere. Cool. And, and you're, you're super active, too, like online. So if people want to follow you, for the few people who might not know where to find you, where, where's the best way to keep up with you and your work? On Twitter at Torre, on Instagram at Torre Show. That's my weekly, twice weekly podcast, Torre Show, where we interview uh, all kinds of successful Black people. We just did one today with Stephanie Mills that mm. was, you know, awesome. Just talking to her about music and singing and singers she loved. And she dated. Michael Jackson when they were both teenagers. I did really? not know this. Yeah. Huh. So um, really interesting conversation with Stephanie Mills. Yeah. Before you go, here's a fun fact. My middle name is Michael after Michael Jackson. So oh, wow. My sister wanted to name me Michael Jackson Boutet, but they just went with putting my middle name, Michael. So, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate you coming on. So thanks so much. Happy to do it. Thanks, brother. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode and that conversation with Torre about his brand new book. And yeah, like, wasn't wasn't I telling you like before we started that he is so knowledgeable and it's crazy. His his memory of all these stories and details is bonkers. But anyways, yeah, if like we did not even cover like a fraction like a fraction of the stories, right? Like I was concerned. I'm like, oh man, I don't want to spoil, you know, some of these stories for, you know, those who haven't read the book or don't know about these stories or whatever. But even, you know, after this conversation, like there's so much more in that book. So if you're curious, if you're interested, like I mentioned in here, like there was just so much I, I did not know, right? And and yeah, so it, it's really cool to read that book. And as we discussed, you know, in this episode, like you learn a little bit more about the details surrounding, you know, Prince's addiction, which led to, you know, his overdose. So, so yeah, make sure you check it out. I know a lot of you, you know, out there, 
you know, you come from an addiction recovery background, or you know, someone, and I think it's important that we know how, you know, this can happen to anybody, especially, you know, celebrities. But yeah, again, a huge, huge thank you to Torre for taking the time to come on. He's such a busy guy. So make sure down in the description, make sure you're following him on Twitter, grab a copy of the book and check out those other links to his podcast, his other books and all that kind of good stuff. All right. And don't forget, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. So you don't miss any upcoming news or episodes or any of that good stuff. All right. But yeah, if you're new here, if you're new to the rewired soul podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you're following, make sure you're subscribed. All right. I'm always talking with authors about different subjects, about their books, all sorts of stuff. And I have so many cool episodes coming up. So make sure you're following and subscribe and a great free way to help out the podcast is one, share it, right? So for example, we just had an amazing conversation about Prince and this brand new book that dropped. So if you're like, yo, I know some people who love Prince and might enjoy this book, or they love Torre and they want to, you know, hear this conversation, share this over on social media. And another way to support the podcast, it doesn't cost you a penny, is head over to Apple, leave a rating, leave a review. All this stuff really helps out with the little algorithms and it helps distribute the podcast to more people so we can build this little, this little beautiful community that we got going on. All right. But some other ways to support the podcast are down in the description below. Uh, I've self-published some books about, you know, addiction recovery. I've uh, written a book about uh, how to help a loved one um, who struggles with addiction, as well as a couple other books. So yeah, make sure you check that out. That's at the rewiredsoul.com. You can become a patron. And down below, there was also an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. Mental health is a huge part of my life. And BetterHelp is a service that I've personally used. So if you want affordable online therapy with a licensed therapist, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, so one more huge thank you to Tori for coming on. And thank you to all of you for hanging out and listening to this episode. And I will have a brand new episode for you tomorrow. So I'll see you next time.